Hello everyone, you're listening to America Meditating Radio. We collect wisdom, inspire each other, and empower hearts on demand 24-7. I'm Sister Jenna, host of the syndicated America Meditating Radio. Join us as we talk one-on-one with leading experts who answer life's most compelling questions. Because in a world of uncertainty, we need answers right here, right now. America Meditating Radio, a show for everyone to learn more about this amazing thing called life. Who are you? Let me just ask you that again. Who are you? of a good relationship with intentions and goals is keeping in mind that the primary aim of setting and working towards those goals is to feel the way you want to feel. The external things we want to have and do and experience, those are your secondary goals, all of which will get you back to the whole cosmic point, experiencing your core desired feelings.
here's the diamond of it all. Knowing how you actually want to feel is the most potent form of clarity that you can have. And generating those feelings is the most powerfully creative thing that you can do with your life. It is your birthright to have your desires fulfilled. Every desire is a prayer. Desire is the underpinning of manifestation. Welcome to America Meditating Radio. That was Daniel Laporte on Desires Divine. Every thought is a prayer. I would clarify that every pure thought <laughs> is a prayer. But yes, in some sense, too, there are certain thoughts that we might be serving unknown to us, and they are actually creating the reality. And some of them aren't the ones that we really feel comfortable with, but they're there in our lives to help us to maybe dig deeper and rise higher and the reason why I'm saying that is from even experience, there are certain thoughts that I've had that I don't want them to manifest and I don't want them to come true. However, they are being driven by some experience of the past, a sense of loss, a sense of um, shame, a sense of disappointment, and sometimes unconsciously, at the deepest level, there are certain thoughts that are being generated and they are bringing us back or bringing us down. They are... um, kind of making us not live fully. And I know that because of social media and the media period, we tend to feel like we have to live more than what we witness on television or on social media, or even just with our own reality. And we stop valuing what we have as a gift and as a blessing. And so if we're so caught up on the um, external expression while the internal reality is falling away, we're still not going to feel like we're living complete. How many people do you know that seem to have it all, but yet inside they just don't feel complete? And how many folks, I've met so many, by the way, um, but the 95 countries that I've traveled to, and when I've actually gone into extremely impoverished areas and communities, I have sat with those families and have left feeling so rich. And I've checked if my interpretation were coming from a sense of empathy because maybe I'm grateful for all that I have and I see how little they do have and they seem quite happy. No, I I actually watch them when they think I'm not watching. And I look at the love and the care that mothers have prepared something in their little mud hut just to make sure that I'm satisfied. And I will leave knowing that that pot of rice might have been their only meal for the week. And so, of course, I always leave behind something um, more than what they've given me. But 
I walk away really, really with a sense of, you know, how much are we living from that interior place of safety? How many of us are really living with the energy of feeling safe enough to be vulnerable, safe enough to celebrate our victories, safe enough to show up in the world? And we really need to start to break away from those limits and um, become very authentically true and to really check ourselves, honestly, honestly check ourselves, seeing what way we can actually enjoy this thing called life. Today, it gives me great pleasure to welcome our guest. Celeste Headley is an award-winning journalist, professional speaker, and the author of Herd Mentality, and We Need to Talk. How to Have Conversations That Truly Matter. In her 20-year career in public radio, she has been the executive producer of On Second Thought at Georgia Public Radio and anchored programs including Tell Me More, Talk of the Nation, All Things Considered, and Week in Edition. She's also served as co-host of the National Morning News Show, The Takeaway from PRI and WYNC, and anchored presidential coverage in 2012 for PBS World Channel. But in addition, Celeste serves as an advisory board member of ProCon.org and the Listen First Project and is the first co-host for Season 3 of the Scene on Radio podcast, Men and the Upcoming Series Retro Report on PBS. Celeste is recipient of the 2019 Media Changemaker Award and her newest book, Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underliving, will be released in just a month or so. Uh, today, we're privileged to welcome Celeste Headley to America Meditating Radio. Hi, Celeste. Thank you for joining us this morning. Hi. Thank you, and thank you for that great introduction. <laughs> You're welcome. You've earned every bit of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, there's a lot going on in the nation, and I'm curious to ask you as a journalist, as a woman, how are you feeling in terms of your interpretation of what America is going through right now? So, like so many other people, it's complicated, right? My feelings are are positive at one point and and negative at the other point. You know, we have a, a, a leader who represents many things that a lot of us don't didn't think America was about. And as a mixed race woman, that it, that's a little bit disappointing, but. I will say this, two things. Number one, no person of color in America was truly surprised by the decision on, the voting decision on 20, in 2016. I think there were a lot of people who had believed that the civil rights movement had fixed racism in the U.S., but no person of color believed that. So although they were, may have been disappointed that that's the choice people made, they weren't surprised. On the other hand, I do think there's some positive effect out of that, in that I think a lot of people woke up to see that there are still some real challenges in the United States, that Martin Luther King didn't, you know, end all racism and discrimination and prejudice, and suddenly see the United States for truly what it is and the challenges that we're having. And I think in the end, that's positive. Mm, good. That's a good answer. You know, you've been doing a lot of work, and I would love to invite our listeners to learn more about Celeste Headley and 
her career choices, her personal choices, her work in um, writing. Can you let us know, you know, what was it that made you actually begin to pursue a career in journalism? What was the, the, the premise behind you saying, I want to convey messages, I want to convey what's going on, but also to see journalism going through such such um, a difficult time for journalists? Okay, so I would love to say I had this wonderful, inspiring decision to join journalism. I didn't. I was a professional opera singer, and I needed a day job, and I was offered a job at a public radio station. That's how I got into it. What kept me in journalism, and particularly public broadcasting, because I had plenty of offers to go on the commercial side, and that's totally fine. Everyone makes that decision for themselves. But I I wanted to make sure I'm a Buddhist, and I want to make sure I'm doing right work. I want to make sure every day that I can end the day thinking my work made the world a slightly better place. And I truly believe in the role of journalism to sift through all of the overwhelming information that we get every day and tell you what's true and what's real as far as we have been able to verify it and confirm it and then connect the dots because most people just don't have the time to do that and there is so much information come into your phone and your computer and everywhere else, your podcast. And so my role is to sift through that, figure out what's important, and then to connect the dots for you so that you can make better decisions. You know, what's interesting for me, too, is, you know, witnessing, you know, individuals calling the news that's being conveyed fake news, and yet also hearing and watching them relying on what the news is saying for them to send out their messages. And you say to yourself, I mean, how does anyone else not see that? How do you not discern and, re- and realize this is theater and I'm a pawn? And what is my role of responsibility? My question to you is if you were to educate a pretty big chunk of us in the United States of America who basically have sat in our couches and watched reality television and watched all of these shows that kind of you know, take us from a different dimension of thinking for ourselves, if you were to ever teach them anything to be able to wise up and to understand that they are in charge of their own life and the destiny and even of the country, what would you tell them, Celeste? I would say that inaction is also a consequential choice. Mm. Um, whether you like it or not, every single person is a part of the machine that makes America run. The decisions that you make ultimately will have an effect on other people's lives and livelihood and health. You can't run away from that. And so by not choosing to see it, by not making conscious, intentional choices about those things, you're still making a choice and you're still having an impact. The responsibility is not one you can let go. You can't shrug off the world like Atlas did. It's with you for the rest of your life as long as you're alive. And so it's best to make choices that at least do no harm. Mm, if you beautiful can't, answer. Yeah, if you can't reach out to someone else with generosity and give, at least do no harm. Mm. Well, you know, your TEDx talk had um, over 23 million views, and you know, the world is just into that. Not that that's the genesis of it all, but it actually maybe is signaling that there's an interest in the topic, and it's all about having better conversation. Do you think it's because we've become so disconnected from one another at a really deeply personal level and we're so caught up in the virtual connection, which really isn't real? 
I'm so glad you started the question that way because I agree with you that the fact that my talk has so many views means there's a ton of people all over the world putting that into Google search, right? That's a very mm-hmm. heartening indication that people recognize there's a problem and are searching for solutions. And yes, the most primal need that human beings have after our survival is taken care of is belonging. Belonging supersedes ethics. It supersedes religion, family, everything else. We need to feel we are part of a community. We think that sending emails or sending texts or social media is a replacement for the neighborhood barbecues and the chat with your friend at the coffee shop or all of the the formerly embodied conversations, either embodied or phone conversations we used to have, but there's zero scientific evidence of that. You know, I mean, there's, it's just you cannot replace. We have for millennia evolved to hear each other pe- humans' voices, to communicate that way. There is information that is relayed in the sound of a human voice that you can get no other way. And I can explain it really quickly this way. How many times have you called a friend and they've answered, and all they have to do is say, hello, and you say, what's wrong? Yeah, very complicated and nuanced information was passed to you in two syllables. Mm, wow, that's so true, right? What are some of the ways, Celeste, that um, we can develop better conversational skills? And, and And again, this is just an observation for me, and I don't know if I'm alone in this observation, but... I would say maybe 10 years ago, I didn't witness a lot of people so extroverted and a lot of times I watch people walking and texting or sitting and texting and there's a big smile on their faces. And 10 years ago, I always saw a lot of people just inside of themselves, maybe reading a magazine or a book. They weren't that engaged in a particular way. So a lot has shifted in us. So I'm curious to ask, like, could you share with us some some better ways of conversing with one another? Because there seems to be what, just a, from an observant point of view, people are enjoying just talking to each other via through a phone rather than saying hello to the person that's sitting next to them in a waiting room. So we have to be careful about how we define enjoyment. What you experience every time you refresh your text or your Twitter feed, or your inbox, is a shot of dopamine. Dopamine is the addiction hormone. Dopamine is felt almost entirely in the amygdala, the fight-or-flight part of your brain, and then in your body. It's visceral rather than cerebral. Dopamine tends to make people less nice, right? It makes them less compassionate, less patient. It's the hormone that says it's necessary for your functioning, but right now we are overdosing on it. I don't think that's true enjoyment. When you have an actual conversation with another person, true social interaction gives you serotonin and oxytocin. It floods your, just your brain, not your body, with these wonderful euphoric feeling of belonging and compassion. It makes you more patient. It makes you nicer. Not only mm-hmm. that, but it engages the part of your brain, the, the prefrontal cortex, which actually is your executive thinking. So I just want to be careful about when we say enjoyment. Because having social interactions every day actually Mm -hmm. lowers your heart rate, lowers your cortisol levels, makes you less likely to suffer from all kinds of diseases, not just heart disease, but cancer and diabetes. And in fact, they did a longitudinal study in the UK 
and followed a huge group of men for a long time and found that based on the number of authentic social interactions they had, they could predict with a fair degree of accuracy who would still be alive in 10 years. That's how important that uh, authentic social interaction is for a human being, for a homo sapiens. So our enjoyment is superficial. Our relationships are horizontal and not vertical. And it is the vertical relationships where we truly get to know someone and feel we have a confidant. Those are the ones that that bring us well-being. Are the times that we're in a proof of, um, is it a result of us having superficial relationships? Because that's what sells. Superficiality sells. It's so interesting. Answering that question was what sent me on a, part of what sent me on a three-year research journey for this new book, Do Nothing, because it's not a technology that's made this massive, very unhealthy change. It actually occurred at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution when we started to make work the center of our beings. And it's, I just think it's funny that you say that's what sells, because literally commerce is what has caused this massive change. And we have to break away from this idea that work is identity, that time is money, that everything has to be commodified and given a a monetary value because the things that matter most to our well-being can't be analyzed that way. They can't be measured that way. That's good. That's a good one. It's interesting, though, uh, that we have reached such a place of superficiality. Congratulations on your upcoming release of your new book, Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underlying. Tell us a little bit about the book and why you chose to write it. I mean, I chose to write it because I myself felt overwhelmed and just stressed (laughs) out all the time. Aren't we all? (laughs) Yes. But, you know, I mean, like so many people, I thought, you know, I was broke my whole life. And then... Suddenly, in my 40s, I had a a big influx of money. And I thought that when I had enough money, when my bills were actually taken care of without worry, that it would solve all those stress problems. And I was totally surprised to find it went the other way. I became busier and more stressed when I had more income. And so I had to ask myself why, and it started me down this entire path. And I know that a lot of people are getting ready to blame our current situation on technology, and that's Mm -hmm. a danger because technology is not the problem. It's a symptom, but it's not the core problem. I'm with you on that, and I should have reframed even my conversation on that earlier on. You've said that human beings are working more instead of less, living harder, not smarter, and becoming more lonely, and also anxiety rate is out the roof, Celeste. Why? So... Um, Yes, you are correct. Um, In fact, the life expectancy in the U.S. has gone down for three years years in a row. And they asked the doctor, the lead author of the report, what's causing it, and he said despair. We require embodied and authentic human interaction. We require it. And I know that because you can see the impacts on your physiology and your neurology when you have one. In fact, if you have a 10-minute chat with a stranger about nothing, nothing important, you will then perform better on a whole battery of different cognitive tests. Like there's so much evidence showing that our bodies respond in this positive way to real interaction. 
So now that we're choosing to isolate ourselves, and millennials are, are the most likely generation to think that sitting on the couch texting back and forth um, is the same as a conversation. It's not. It does not fulfill your sense of belonging. It, in fact, stress, stresses you out. The constant mm-hmm. shots of dopamine are making you tired. So, yeah, of course we're lonely because we're choosing not to do social things anymore. You know, we, yeah. don't, we, laugh. we laugh at the way our grandparents used to have bowling leagues and rotary clubs. <laughs> and, you know, we, we laugh at the naivete of earlier generations, but they were happier so why is it that we tend to measure our time in terms of efficiency instead of meaning? And I'm one of those. I like to, well, I'm not a micromanager nor am I so detail-oriented, but I do like to see results. And I feel like whatever I choose to do or am called to do has purpose and meaning. That's why I'm in the field that I'm in. But we do tend to measure our time in terms of efficiency and not necessarily look at the deeper aspects of it. Any reason why? Yeah, because we have lost sight of how a human being functions. <laughs> you know, it's so interesting because in order in the research for this book, I ended up having to talk to evolutionary biologists and paleontologists. Like it goes deep. Yeah, that's how hard it's going to be for us to fix this. But the reason is, is we think we can put our nose to the grindstone and just push through. We think that long hours of labor equal more productivity, right? That makes sense. You work more, mm-hmm. you get more. But that's actually not how it works. And this predates technology. This goes back to um, data we have from the 19th century. At one point in the 1950s, the mid-20th century, they followed a whole bunch of scientists at the University of Illinois. They just tracked their hours and they tracked their output. And those who were putting in more than 50 hours a week were the least mm-hmm. productive group the least productive. So it's this illusion that we have that, you know, (laughs) putting in an extra hour and, 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 you know, cutting our elect short to put in an extra half hour, whatever it is, we think that's producing more, but it's doing the opposite because human beings don't persist. They pulse. Yes, I I agree with that. Labor and rest and labor and rest. I agree with that 100%. I have a a really solid staff. I love them all and respect them highly. And I've noticed that there are just times when I'll just come in. I'll do something in 15 minutes, what I'm waiting them to do for a week. And I'm like, like, what is wrong with you people? Come on already. We can do this. It's so funny. There's this great, have you heard of Parkinson's Law? No, please tell me. <laughs> so, so Parkinson's law states that the the time it takes to do something will conform to the amount of time allotted. <laughs> so I agree says, with I need, you. Yeah, if someone says I need this memo by Friday, it will take you until Friday to get it done. If someone says I need this memo in two hours, it will take you two hours. <laughs> so I get that. I get that. Don't give them all that space. Oh, give it to me when you're ready. Nope, nope, got it. I will remember that law. (laughs) FYI, thank you for that. That's why I'm having this conversation with you. Let's talk about something that you have shared about instituting a global shift in our thinking. So we can especially stop sabotaging our well-being and maybe, you know, find a balance with work and play. What is the shift that we really need to focus on right now? to bring about that change? 
I mean, the, the number one most essential thing we have to do is stop working long hours. However you make that happen, and I, I say this knowing that there are some people who are in a financial position in their lives where they don't have the luxury of having any control over their hours. And sadly, mm-hmm. our society is set up to demand long hours of people and punish you if you don't put them in, and I'm, I'm very sorry that there are people in that position. For everybody else, you don't have to answer emails at 9 o'clock on Saturdays. You can walk away from your job and leave it behind you. And that's the number one most important thing is to stop bleeding the boundaries between work and home. Stop doing your homework at work <laughs> and stop doing your work work at home. At home. There need to be mm. clear distinctions. Yeah. Give me some more. <laughs> okay, so another another one that you can do, and this is really simple, is actually to become aware of how you're spending your time. So one surprising thing um, that comes out of the research is that we're actually not working more hours than our parents and grandparents did. We're working fewer. And I know it doesn't feel like that. So the, one of the reasons we think that is because because we're carrying around our work tool in our pockets all the time, our brains never disengage from work. And therefore, we feel exhausted and like we're at work all the time because we literally are, you're carrying your work inbox with you. But in terms of your actual hours worked, that's gone down over the past few decades. So a really simple thing you can do is just for like a week or two, keep a track of what you do every couple hours, pull your notebook over and write down what you did for the past couple hours and how long it took you. And I think people end up being very surprised that they spent 45 minutes shopping for shoes and, you know, they lost another 45 minutes to Facebook or whatever it may be. I think if you're like me when I did this exercise, you will be shocked to find where your time is going. And you can literally reclaim your time. Yeah, I get that. It's sometimes difficult. I have seen individuals lose their house key but not lose their cell phones. Haven't you noticed that, Celeste? Like, what is it? I see nobody forgets their phone. They'll forget their wives. They'll forget their kids. They'll forget the dog. They'll forget the keys. They'll forget to eat, but they won't forget their cell phones. What is that connection at a spirit level? Really, it's an addiction, isn't it? We all are addicted, and and older people like to blame it on millennials and younger people, but that's a cop-out. Baby boomers are just as likely to be addicted to their phones as any young person. I'll I'll just give you an anecdote. I was giving workshops at the TED conference, and I don't allow cell phones in my workshops. So there's a Mm -hmm. cardboard box by the door, and you put your phone in, and you collect it when you leave. The only generation that complained and refused in a couple of cases to put their phones in were the baby boomers. They were the only ones. So that's mm-hmm. just a way for me to say, don't think that because you're older, you're scot-free. You are probably addicted also. And I don't mean addicted metaphorically. I mean, you are literally addicted. The dopamine has you addicted. Dopamine, I mean, they, they designed these cell phones on the slot machine model. The software designers admit this. And slot machines are the number one most addictive kind of gambling. Mm-hmm, it's that mm-hmm. variable reward. We're literally yeah. addicted. 
How interesting. So how do you break the addiction, Celeste? So, yeah, I, I would suggest starting small. So schedule time in. Maybe you take your dog for a walk every day, right? Maybe you go to the gym every day. Choose a time of the day when you don't take your cell phone with you. Yeah. Leave it at home. <laughs> you know how to get to the coffee shop. If you go to your coffee shop every day to get a latte, leave your cell phone at home. Yeah, and I've been you doing will start that a lot. to realize. Yeah, that's exactly right. You will start mm-hmm. to realize that it, there's a freedom to being without it. Indeed. Actually, you start to get back to your original sense of feeling. You start to really just value the smaller things which are really important, and you start to realize the world will continue with or without you. And so in whatever state you need to live your life in, why don't you live it, you know, with meaning, um, with with, with a deeper sense of um, presence? So are you doing any book signings? Are you going on tour? Is there an upcoming event, Celeste, that we can know about and perhaps participate in? Yeah, there'll be a number of them. I mean, I'll be at Politics and Prose here in D.C. I have a number of events up in New York. The book comes out on March 10th. So there will be a lots of different events. They'll all be uh, listed on my website, CelesteHeadley.com, and I would love to see everybody. You know, frankly, I just hope that the book starts a conversation about some things yeah. we're just not talking about. You know, here's a, yeah. a, a horrifying statistic. The vast majority, and I mean somewhere between 70 and 80% of workers, say they never engage in deep thought while they're at work. Wow. Ever. That is so bad. I mean, I know. So, wow. Uh, That's okay. That's okay. We're a work in progress. When the book comes out, could you promise me you'll, when you've done with all your big programs, do a book signing at the Meditation Museum? Oh, I'd love to. That would be so nice because I think it'll be a great audience. And in terms of taking care of your deeper sense of self, what does Celeste Headley do to take care of her soul? Well, I make sure that I, I mean, I obviously I meditate twice a day, sometimes more if it's a tough day. You know, that what's the old cliche if you have 15 minutes to meditate, then take your 15 minutes. If you don't have 15 minutes to meditate, then meditate for 30 minutes. <laughs> So um, I make sure that happens. Um, I also make sure I get outside and see trees and nature, and I try to do it first thing in the morning. I really, and this is hard, but I've really tried every day to make sure I do something that has no logical, productive purpose, (laughs) something that's not worth anything to anybody else, whether it be doing crosswords, whether it be working on embroidery that's only for me, Whatever it is, I try to do something that is basically useless at least once a day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like that. Well, thank you so very much for joining us and for doing what you're doing. I really appreciate your work. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for the good questions. Mm, all the best. Take care. That was Celeste Headley, and for more information, go to Celeste, C E L E S T E. Headley, H-E-A-D-L-E-E dot com. For more information, she's left us with some really good advice as to how to sort of bring it down a little bit, no? And really begin to value the simple and most important things in our lives, which are one another, which is actually just each other. We need to connect more. 
Remember, no one can take away your happiness unless you give them permission, and we really are here to love each other the same, so let's do that. My request, practice your traffic control, which is the traffic control of your mind. Every hour, join a million volunteers of the Brahma Kumaris in 120 countries who pause for 30 seconds to 3 minutes every hour and hour to go into their own inner peace and to radiate that peace on the planet. I can assure you by the end of the day, you will feel absolutely lifted. Here is Bliss, and of course, the track is called Lifted. You take care of yourself and be well.
I'm Sister Jenna. You've been listening to America Meditating Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Did you enjoy that conversation? Because you can also listen to it on Spotify or on iTunes, 24-7, anytime, anywhere. I do trust we all have inner power to become our very best. When we listen with curiosity to learn more, we grow. So thanks so much for tuning in, and do be easy on yourself. Take care.